All right, what is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined once again by Coach Andrea. Andrea, as always, thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. So, um, we have another Q and A today, but before we get into that, just fill us in what's been going on with your training, your nutrition as of late. It's kind of a broken record. I feel like it's the exact same as last time, which I think I also said last time. I, was um, <laughs> I So I started working with Austin Stout, which I don't know if that was last time or the time before that um, I talked about that. And the plan has been the same since I started with him. It's I'm in a metabolic phase. Um, I'm just eating more food and uh, waiting on blood work, which I will get next week. So we'll see in a couple weeks once I get those results back, if anything changes. So I'll either maybe um, go into a fat loss phase or I honestly don't know what we'll do if my blood work still looks off. So last time I got it done, it was like January or February, maybe February. Um, T4. Yeah, T4 was pretty low. Progesterone was pretty low. So as long as those things look good, then I'll be able to go to a fat loss phase. Okay. I'm interested to see what comes about there. Your blood work has always been pretty interesting, it seems like. And I'm with Austin being as smart as he is in that realm specifically, I'm really interested to see like what you guys end up doing. Last time I went into a fat loss phase, which was uh, last summer and fall for the photo shoot throughout it, even eating 60 grams of carbs per day, my blood glucose was like mid to upper nineties, which we want to see between 75 and eight, 75 and 85, 70 and 85. Um, so that has been like a persistent issue. So it'll be really nice if I can see that get resolved because that is going to mean that I get better pumps in the gym. I'm able to grow more muscle. I'm able to lose body fat a little bit more efficiently and hopefully through a reverse diet process, not gain quite as quickly as I did throughout this one, which is just really like, it didn't quite make sense according to like the numbers. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what we do to get all that resolved. Yeah, and I know that's been the case for your last few reverse diets. It is very interesting, too, with your fast blood glucose being as high as it is. And is that, like, have you been measuring that recently and it's still in the 90s? Yeah, I do it about three. Yeah, it, well, it's actually, like, like 105, I'd say, average. Oh, damn. High, but I'm eating a ton of carbs right now, too, for me. Yeah, yeah, it's not good. That's, like, pre-diabetic levels. So just going into a deficit will help, but... I'm hoping like through all the stuff that we're doing together, that it's actually like down into a health level versus just down into a little bit less pre-diabetic level. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I'm really interested to see what comes to that. Um, I'm kind of the opposite camp of you where we've been reverse dieting. So I dieted down to 200. So I lost about 15 pounds and we brought carbs up so much. So my carbs are back to my carbs are at 395 right now. And we've had a free meal in there. So realistically, my carbs are like higher than that on a weekly average because I've been enjoying my free meals for sure as well. But we've been maintaining that just right at 200 so nicely. So I've been I've been very, very happy with how our reverse diet has gone. And we bumped, we didn't have to get very aggressive at all in the deficit. And I've talked about this quite a bit as far as like having a more rigid metabolism. But normally I can't reverse diet up very high, but he's also had my movement very high where I'm doing like three days of incline walking a week. 
Um, and my daily stats are just a good amount higher than I know like in the past, like when I worked with Steve, I was only getting like 4,000 to 5,000 steps a day. We're now consistently getting 10 to 11 K a day. So my movement's also a lot higher, but it's been, it's been cool to an extent. It's been cool to eat, like be able to eat that much food. I don't, I like we were just talking about on our mentorship call. Like I don't necessarily love personally, like having to push food super high because it's more like, okay, this is kind of inconvenient. I keep having to eat and I would rather just be able to like focus and get work done or whatever. But, um, it's been cool to see like how much different it is with my movement so much higher, which of course makes complete sense. Um, Cool. I'm in, I'm really interested to see like the direction you guys go after you get your blood work done, though. So from there, are you ready to get into some Q and A? Yep. Let's do it. Perfect. All right. So I'm going to kick the first one over to you because Jody asked this question, and I know you are actually taking over her programming for this specific reason. So I'm interested to see what you've come up with here so far, or if you've dug into that so far. But the question was, how do you program slash optimize glute gains in an already traditional push-pull upper-lower training? Now, I don't know if you're actually going to have her do a push-pull upper-lower split, um, but I'm interested to hear your take on like what's the plan to optimize the glute gains here. Yeah, she so we're, I'm actually having her start out with an upper lower upper lower split. So mm -hmm. a little bit different than the push pull upper lower. Um, so what she is going to do is focus on uh, the main movement on each of those lower body days be a length and overload glute movement. So yeah. like a bent knee RDL is one that I really, really love. So we're going to yeah, um, use that one. Um, at, uh, it on each, so she's also working out from home. So that adds a little bit of complexity to it because she has barbells, dumbbells, and a um, 45 degree hip extension. So that, that's helpful. So we'll, we'll hit a couple of lengthened overload movements on each lower body day or glutes, uh, glutes slash hamstrings, and then hit a couple shortened overload movements with hip thrust, uh, 45 degree hip extension, and that's the that's the the plan and then the going forward the plan is just to progress on those and minimize variety in her training quite a bit since you know she's working with limited um, equipment and i just want to see her progressing on those movements and really focusing on improving execution and like getting the most out of each rep so she's coming from a CrossFit background and with CrossFit, it's very much like efficiency point A to point B type lifting, whereas growing um, muscle, you really want to be a little bit less efficient and be able to get the most stimulus out of the least amount of weight and then progress on that over time. What yeah. So but Absolutely. Yeah. Tension is going to be a huge piece of that. I think there's like a fine line with like, I don't know if I necessarily like the lightest weight possible, but again, like moving the heaviest weight at the sacrifice of execution isn't your number one priority, right? Where again, like the, the yeah. tension is the biggest piece, but I think for most people that have struggled with both glutes in the past, that's very much, or really like any muscle group people have struggled to move or to build it's almost always a matter of execution and focusing on like improving execution at first where I think people typically go to like, Hey, we need to, to dump a ton of volume on this muscle group first, where it's almost like, again, like 
it doesn't matter. Again, if like the, your engine is broken, it doesn't matter how much more gas we keep putting into the tank or how hard we keep pushing the pedal, right? We need to like fix this core issue first, which is very much the execution piece of it. And yeah, I, I like the approach here. I think that like, so if somebody's training four days a week, trying to build glutes specifically, um, there are a few ways you can go about it. And typically like the, an upper lower, upper lower, or is gonna typically be the bread and butter. Or if we're really like pushing the, it really there's no right or wrong way to do this. Sometimes I'll do like an upper push, or excuse me, a lower push, lower pull. You can also split, like if you're, it depends on how much you're pulling back upper body volume. Like if this is someone that's more advanced and they actually need like a more glute specialization phase. So like, for example, Jody, she has a ton of muscle tissue. So she's definitely like more in that realm. Sometimes I want to pull, but actually pull back upper body volume a little bit. And keep it closer to like eight sets per eight hard sets per muscle group per week for upper body. Sometimes we'll just do again like that lower push, lower pull. But there's not you can do that just as well, like with the um with an upper lower split. And then from there, yeah, very similar to what you said, I would start by biasing like some primarily glute dominant movement. So like that bend the RDL is a great example. And then typically Again, if we're only training lower body two days a week, which is perfectly fine, but then typically even within like those quad, those, like we still want to touch on quad some, but then typically even when I'm programming that, it might be something like a rear foot elevated split squat, right? Where we're getting a lengthened quad, but we're also getting a lengthened glute. So typically I'm looking to, okay, across the course of the training week, we want to get at least three, typically four movements that are really going to, again, like allow for a solid, like lengthen glute where we're going to put a big stretch on the glute. Um, we're really going to be primarily targeting that glute max and then maybe one to two, probably like one shortened overload movement within each of those training days as well. That's really going to bias the glute. So that could be, for example, maybe on day one, we would have something like a hip thrust or a cast glute bridge, maybe on the second lower body day, it would be something like a 45 degree hip extension, right? Typically, but again, like we know that those those movements that are going to again train the lengthen position be more challenging than the lengthen position or like overload that more are going to be the ones that are more conducive to growth. So those are our bread and butter. So again, it would typically be if we're looking at like a two training lower body two days a week, it would probably be like three to maybe four movements. Realistically, I'd probably start with like three movements that really bias like that lengthen position of the glute. And then one, uh, probably two across like one per each training day that are kind of short and overload. And then from there, like, if we do see the need to add more volume or potentially more moves, I would progress from there. But I think that's a pretty good starting point for most people. Do you have any other thoughts on that? No, I think that pretty much covered it. Yeah, cool. with her, her quads are super developed. So every movement that touches her quads, it's also involving glutes. There's nothing that's like isolating quads, especially in like the Lincoln overload position, not going to like a uh, knee or a, a heel elevated uh, high bar squat or anything like that because she doesn't really need to focus any direct volume there. So mo for most people, there would be a little bit of that where it's a little more balanced. But yeah, for her, it's almost all focused more toward glutes. Yeah, I think Jody is literally like everybody's quad goals. So that's yeah. that's also kind of an exception. But yeah, in a case like that where it's almost I don't know if this is actually the case for her because I don't think she's supposed to grow in her quads further. But like for someone who did, like, hey, I just want to build my glutes. I don't want to grow my quads. 
they really very much focus on maximizing hip flexion and minimizing knee flexion, right? So we're maximizing movements like a Romanian deadlift or even a glute emphasis rear foot elevated split squat. We're really pushing our hips back into the movement. We're not thinking about driving our knee forward. And again, once we get to about a 90 degree bend in the knees, we're going to return to upright, right? So it's mostly that hip flexion, that pushing your hips backward and forward that we're trying to focus on if we're trying to build the glutes. But cool. I'm really excited to see how that goes. I'm stoked for you to take over her training. It's been, it was super cool to see the result of, it was super cool to see the result of her photo shoot also from you guys' work together there. So I'm really excited to see you guys like take another step on that journey. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Perfect. So next question we have is best exercises to strengthen the knee slash make it more stable. All right. So within this, um, first of all, we're definitely not physical therapists. So if it's like a client and so this is definitely just anything we put out here is just for educational purposes only, not any prescription to treat an injury or anything like that. And really with clients, again, if it's like, Hey, there's an actual issue with your knee that you need physical therapy for. We are absolutely going to refer out to that. Like, Hey, you need to talk to your therapist about this. Even if it's like any issue, let's get this checked out. And then from there, we can collaborate with them to see like what the game plan is, what movements you are okay to do and what you are okay to do. So I think first of all, when discussing anything like this, that's an important thing. Um, now from there, when it comes to like strengthening or stabilizing the knee, um, to my understanding, an important piece of this is actually going to be training the hamstrings, especially the distal attachment of the hamstring, which is going to be closer, like where um, the hamstring attaches close to the knee rather than think like closer to your butt or closer to your knee. Um, that distal attachment, which is the one that's closer to the knee, strengthening that to my understanding will quote unquote help stabilize your knee to an extent. So again, that would be training patterns like basically leg curl variations. Now from there, then when we're coming to, and I should have asked for a little bit more context on this question, but then when we're looking at like, hey, this individual just isn't very stable in these patterns. Now my take on this is typically, so we would start them in stable patterns and to progress to less stable patterns over time, right? So from my perspective, if it's like, hey, this person is just like very shaky, they're not very stable when they try to go into a squat pattern. All right, so first, we're just going to try to start building strength through the range of motion, right? So maybe we're doing something like a leg press where that's very stable. And then maybe we're progressing to something like a split squat where we have both feet on the ground. But again, if they're still not very stable within this pattern, um, we're going to have hand support, right? So maybe they're holding onto the rack with one hand. So we're adding an external source of stability. So then within that, again, we're just building strength through that range of motion. Um, and then from there, okay, once we're, once we're strong with that, once we build strength through that range of motion, maybe we go into something like a split squat, or if they're still struggling with that, maybe we do something like a bilateral squat. This is also something that's going to be pretty specific to the individual. But again, like from there, we would probably progress to something like, I would probably personally progress to something like, okay, now maybe we are going to do something like a... Um, like a goblet squat, for example, um, if we want to see again how stable they are within this. And then maybe we're progressing to a split squat without any type of hand support, right? And again, within this progression that we've made, as we've got stronger through this range, this should be at the point where they're more and more stable as we're introducing these increasingly less stable patterns. That's kind of how I would approach that from a broad-based perspective. Do you have any other thoughts on that? I, I really like all of that advice. Um, 
So the only thing that I would add there, and like you said, there's not a lot of context. So with this, if this is like a client that we're working with, we'd ask a lot of questions and see like, what positions are you not stable in? Is there any pain? Um, but after you have worked through all of that, you can add in um, things like sissy squats that add a little bit of um, direct like uh, tension there and then progress that over time. So I really like um, something like a knee banded sissy squat where the band goes behind both of your knees and goes and attaches in front of you. And so you're allowing forward knee travel and then pressing back against the band at the top. And what you can do is kind of progress that over time and increase your range of motion. Um, mm. This is after going through like all of the more stable to less stable things that you talked through. And then I'd also address mobility at the hips and ankles too, because your hips and ankles are your more um, uh, mobile joints. Like they have more range of motion in all directions, whereas your knee is a stable joint. And if you have re restrictions, immobility in your hips or ankles then can cause a little bit less stability in your knee um, so if you can do some hip mobility drills and ankle mobility drills then that can help sometimes with knee instability but without additional context there i think that that is all i have on it yeah and i mean really there i a lot of times when it comes to like for a lot of individuals and again all of this is in the context of like this is in the absence of pain right if there's pain with a pattern we, from from at least like our our role as coaches typically that's where we want to refer out like again like we want to make sure first and foremost this has been checked in with like a doctor or a physical therapist or something that like sure to make sure again we're good to be like there's not a deeper issue going on here right so this is again speaking to like hey, we're not super stable in this position, but there's not pain, right? So again, basically, it sounds like both of our approach would be like, over time, we're gradually focusing on increasing strength as we increase the range of motion, right? We're building strength in a pattern. We're moving into another pattern that takes that, that need through a slightly greater degree of flexion. We're building strength in that range, et cetera. I also think it's easy to like, just try to address this with mobility. But again, the thing to understand is like, more mobility or more flexibility without also building strength is just further instability, right? So it's important. That's why, like, I don't think anyone on our team, like, programs a huge amount of mobility work because typically, like, the best way for us to increase, like, we could almost term this functional mobility, so to speak, um, is going to be us focusing on getting stronger through these ranges, which is going to require typically some form of loading unless we're, like, very weak in that pattern. Even then, like, body weight, we could still consider loading. Um, but yeah, I don't really think I have anything else to add to that one. So final question we have, which again, I'm going to push over to you is changes to training program when in a deficit, for example, lower weight, higher rep ranges, et cetera. So right off the bat in a deficit, I actually wouldn't change much within training because at the beginning of your deficit, you still have plenty of calories coming in. If it's the first drop in calories, there's not usually like this deep hole that you're in with recovery. Um, once you start to get pretty deep into a deficit, then you might have to make some adjustments to make sure that you're able to recover. Um, so in that case, what you can look at is your total volume in your training program. So that could be um, 
looking at going into a neuro or a metabolic phase so that you're not um, having too much. Um, uh, sorry, I just got distracted by having to turn that thing off. So it wasn't so loud here and then it distracted me anyway. So, um, th so that way you're not um, getting too much volume in your programming and not able to recover from it because you don't have the recovery resources from the additional calories. So um, with that, going into a neuro phase, you would um, be using lower reps, um, more rest in between sets. So overall volume is a little bit lower. With metabolic, you're going um, higher, usually a little bit higher reps, not always, uh, but lower rest in between sets. So then by default, you end up with lower volume because you can't quite use as much weight in that scenario. And so either one of those is going to give you a little bit uh, less taxing training sessions. And so you're able to recover from those a little bit better. Okay. Other than that, and, I mean, do you agree that right off the bat, you wouldn't really change anything? I mean, you can continue with hypertrophy yeah. for a good amount of time until you start to see detriments in recovery. Yeah, very much. I try to keep people like for most of the clients we work with, because aesthetics is most everyone's primary goal. I'm going to try to keep people in hypertrophy as long as it makes sense to keep people in hypertrophy. Um, so when she like speaking to like, should I lower the weight and higher and increase the rep range, for example, there, there's like a lot of times this idea that like, Hey, we're going to use lighter weights. We're going to do higher reps. This is you got to burn more calories and this is going to get us more shredded. Right. But in reality, like, the increase in calories burned is going to be so small that we're not really going to see any increases in fat loss from that. More than anything, we have to look to like our goal with our training should always, whether we're in a fat loss phase or a building phase, our goal with our training should always be sending the signal for muscle growth, right? Because very much like the primary thing we want, if we make these dramatic shifts in our training program, and all of a sudden we're shifting from like, I was lifting challenging loads. I was pushing close to failure with most of my sets to, okay, now that I'm in a deficit, I'm doing lightweight for high reps and I'm stopping much further from failure. Well, in that case, like we have to look at basically what will, what builds muscle will also maintain it, right? We still need that signal, the same signal that muscle is needed in order to maintain muscle tissue, right? Now, the only way for us to send that signal is going to be for us to take things close to failure, right? So we still need to be training pretty consistently within like three reps left in the tank or less. Again, probably I would air still towards like on average, we're going to have one to two reps left in the tank when we end most of our sets, right? So if we go like to, okay, I'm going to use lighter weights, I'm going to use higher reps, unless we're still taking that at the point of um, we're still getting relatively close to failure. If we're just like doing that to burn calories, we're not stopping nearly, we're not, we're stopping a much further from failure. That's the scenario where we're no longer sending our body the signal that this muscle is, is needed. Okay, so now that we're in a calorie deficit, it's more likely that our body is sensing, okay, well, we don't have very many resources coming in as far as calories. I have all this very calorically expensive tissue that is muscle tissue. So why not like get rid of some of this so that, again, like my body is more efficient. I don't need as many calories to sustain so I don't have to keep losing weight, right? Because our bodies don't necessarily want to lose fat past a certain extent, our bodies want to maintain homeostasis. So yeah, I wouldn't recommend like just, I would very much recommend just doing what you normally would to build muscle that you, you nailed it with like the biggest thing we would adjust here is volume, right? So especially as we get deeper, deeper with that loss phase, um, a lot of times 
we won't be able to recover from as much because we don't have as many recovery resources, aka calories, coming in. So a lot of times we will pull back clients' volumes. We won't push volume quite as high. Um, again, maybe we're going to be closer to about somewhere between 10 to um, 10 to 12 to maybe even 14. And this is going to depend a lot on the client because everyone's so individual here. About, yeah, somewhere like we could say roughly 10 hard sets per muscle group, right? Something along those lines is about... And again, like that number could vary quite a bit, but just as a broad generality, probably somewhere between 10 to 14 sets. Um, and then from there, I really like in, in application, I like neural phases, like what I actually do with my clients. I can understand the argument for metabolic phases. I'd be interested to hear your take. I would say like I, I use neural phases quite a bit towards the end of the fat loss phase. And I've discussed this a lot this week on podcasts, I feel, but um, I use neural phases quite a bit towards the end of a fat loss phase because again, typically when we're, that's going to be a little bit easier for people to recover from. And also we can see because neuro neurological progressions, it's very much like your body is getting better at the skill of lifting heavy weights. Your body's getting better at motor unit recruitment. So that's much more something that's going on like with your brain and your nervous system. So within that, even in the absence of plenty, plenty of calories, we can see ourselves still get stronger, but it's not necessarily because we're actually building muscle tissue. Again, it's these quote unquote neurological gains that we're making. So then within that, um, the cool thing about this is a lot of times clients can recover a bit. So basically here, as you said, we're typically going to be working in lower rep ranges. So think in general, we're probably going to be working in like the four to eight rep range. We're going to have a little bit longer rest periods. Volume will typically be maybe a little bit lower. I would say if we're looking at it as like number of hard sets, realistically, it's not very much lower than like, it could like sometimes in a hypertrophy phase, we will push the volume a little bit higher in a surplus and we won't do that here. But again, like if we're actually looking at number of hard sets versus like mathematical volume, typically there, it's still going to be relatively similar to like an individual in a fat loss phase and or in a hypertrophy phase and fat loss. Um, I'll normally make that shift. And again, it's, it's easier for people to recover from typically. Plus we can still like see the logbook actually progressing thanks to those neurological gains, which is a lot harder to come by when we're in a hypertrophy phase. So it can be like more mentally motivated for clients and that makes it more exciting. But really, yeah, the biggest thing like past that, do you often like use a metabolic phase in fat loss? I'll use it more for clients who are training for five days um, people who are training three days per week, I'll just keep them in hypertrophy straight throughout. Um, but if somebody's a little bit more advanced and they've been lifting for a while and they're pretty strong to where they're actually accumulating quite a bit of volume in their training mm -hmm. sessions and get a lot of fatigue from those, then sometimes I will go through metabolic phases with them. Um, just for, for the... Uh, the benefits that they would get from that, like um, improved glucose that taken stuff like that. I feel like it's something a little bit different that's going to help keep them engaged. There are some benefits to that. And if they're in a deficit, then I figure then they can get something from that. So uh, a lot of people will enjoy it too. So would you use that more like a deload? So maybe it's like two weeks or we like a longer, maybe let's say a four week phase. Uh, I, I've done them for usually two, three weeks, okay. Any longer than that. It starts to get like, you're not really, you've gotten the adaptations that you'll get from it. And there's not really much benefit from taking it out longer as far as I understand. 
Okay. Okay. Absolutely. Also, like sometimes, like occasionally, I would use that as like a deload for maybe a week to maybe two week tops. Really, I err more towards hypertrophy and narrow. But again, I don't think there's like a right or wrong way to go about it. Um, I usually err towards it even then like a little bit on the shorter side. But the main thing there is again, like I would very much look at it as what do we need to do? Like typically I would like I would I wouldn't change the progression too much versus like how you would at any other point if you're trying to build muscle, right? And I think that's the main takeaway point where again, we don't want to dramatically shift your programming for the entire fat loss phase. There might be some things again, like we can handle less volume. We don't need as much volume and we have to be realistic about like, okay, maybe we're not going to be able to continue to grow, especially in the latter half of this deficit. But even then, like primarily we need to be sending your body the signal that, Hey, what build muscle is going to maintain muscle. Right. And we need to be still be taking things close to failure, which is going to, no matter what rep range you're working in, that's going to entail working with challenging loads. I think that's kind of the biggest takeaway there. Do you have anything else to add to that? Do you think that, that this comes from, like training improperly in a build, like taking every single set to failure and then they go into a diet and can't really continue that? Mm, I don't think in the context of this question necessarily, no. I think she's just asking like if you should change your program before fat loss. I might be misunderstanding your question though. Yeah, I don't mean this person in particular, but I just mean like the whole thought of like you need to completely change what you're doing whenever you're training in a deficit. I don't know. Mm. It seems like um, some people will just like absolutely smash themselves in their workouts. And so then in the deficit, it's like, Oh, gotcha. Different here. Cause then the, yeah. I mean, if that's how you're training in uh, uh, maintenance or surplus, then yeah, you probably can't maintain that through a deficit, mm-hmm. but that's not really the best way to train through a surplus either. I don't know. Yeah. That might not be the case at all, but. Um. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point because very much like if you, say you were taking every set to failure when you were building and you try to continue to do that in fat loss, you're really going to struggle. And I guess I'll say as well, like I often will adjust all right, all right. So like a lot of times in a hypertrophy phase, I'll take, if we're in a building phase, I'll take like the last set of a good amount of those movements to fail, right? So maybe we're doing like two RIR, one to two, one, and then zero, one on the final set. Whereas a lot of times in a, if we're like doing hypertrophy, but we're in fat loss, I'll pull it back to, hey, maybe we're at like two, one to two, one, right? And we're never taking it to all failure. We're stopping at one. So sometimes we'll pull back intensity just slightly as well. But I, I can have for sure see your point there because again, if it's like, hey, I'm taking every set to failure, Maybe you can recover from that when you're in building phase, but if you try to continue to do that in fat loss phase, you might really struggle and you might just feel absolutely terrible. And then it can for sure feel like you're doing something super wrong. That could be the case. I think more than anything though, like I think it's very much been pushed this idea that again, like if we're, tr- if we're trying to lose fat and that's the primary outcome we want, we need to like be sweating. We need to feel tired. So I know like I made this mistake oh, yeah. when I, when I was like first trying to lose fat, and it was like, okay, now I'm just going to go to circuit training, right? Because I'm sweaty. I'm going to do high reps. I'm not really considering how close I'm failure, but I'm burning more calories and I feel more tired, right? Where at the end of the process, if that's how we're training and we're not considering our proximity to failure, um, we are more likely to have lost muscle during that time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Cool. Do you have any other thoughts on that? No.
Okay. Yo, well, that is all the questions we have for this time. As always, we appreciate all the questions and we will talk to you guys soon.